Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me today are several special guests. First off, Ryan Bruckman from The Legendarium. Hey, thanks for having me on. I've, I've been waiting for this chance, Drew. I've been waiting to be called up <laughs> in my niche. So Yeah, it's it's a, a, a true privilege to, to come on Inking Out Loud. <laughs> um, and uh, my wonderful wife, Lauren McCaffrey. Thanks again. And our resident Star Wars nerd, John. Hi, I'm John. I'm a Star Wars nerd. Yes. And <laughs> on that note, we are, of course, covering today Rogue Squadron by Michael A. Stackpole, the first book in the acclaimed X-Wing series. And uh, we are very excited to be, to be covering this one. Oh, yeah. But as always, I'm going to jump into a summary before we get into our discussion. Rogue Squadron is the first in the X-Wing series, penned by Michael A. Stackpole and takes place two years after the Battle of Endor and the death of Emperor Palpatine. It follows the exploits of Wedge Antilles and the newly reformed Rogue Squadron. Corrin Horn is our principal point-of-view character, giving us a look into the competition and training of the new generation of pilots. Corrin is Corellian, once a member of the Corellian Security Force, and a very talented pilot. He and the rest of the Rogues come through training and are immediately sent to Talassia to begin staging for a campaign against Coruscant. En route to Talassia, the rogues are pulled out of hyperspace by an interdictor cruiser. They run off the Imperials and rescue the smuggler under the interdictor's guns, who turns out to be Mirax Tarek, an old friend of Wedge and the daughter of the infamous smuggler Booster Tarek. Meanwhile, Imperial intelligence agent Curtin Lure, an old nemesis of Korin's from Corsac, is summoned to Coruscant by Isan Isard, the new head of the Empire and leader of Imperial intelligence. She assigns Lure to destroy the rogues, and he quickly discovers their base on Talassia. A contingent of stormtroopers is dispatched to kill the rogues and destroy their base, but Corrin and Ural foil their plans. The stormtroopers are defeated, but Lujane Forge is killed in her sleep, and Corrin, Gavin, and Andurni Hui are injured. The rogues launch a reprisal strike against Flatit and the Imperial base there, and Corrin saves General Salm's Y-Wings with a dangerous maneuver against a Lancer-class anti-starfighter frigate. Soon after, the rogues are part of a mission against Borlaos, codenamed Black Moon, which the Republic views as an ideal staging point for an attack on Coruscant. However, Bothan intelligence is flawed, and the mission is a disaster. Peshk and Andurni are killed, Ural is injured, and the operational capacity of the rogues is cut in half. After the debacle, Korn's R2 unit, Whistler, reveals that he cracked the secret location of Black Moon, and Wedge, Salm, and Korn hatch a plan to take the planet. The rogues use a sneak attack to destroy the power conduit connecting the biotics facility to the main Imperial base, opening the door for a ground invasion. Corrin runs low on fuel, however, and is left behind. Mirax, Tycho, and Emtray realize the danger and rescue Corrin. They beat the rest of the rogues back to their base, and the New Republic prepares for the next stage in the campaign against Isard and the Empire. So, the beginning of the X-Wing series. What do we think, everybody? So, like I was just saying, this this book I didn't really reread completely <laughs> before we did this episode. Um, I've read it probably about ten times because um, it's one of the oldest, or in my own life, one of the first Star Wars books I ever got into. Um, and even since then, I've tried to reread this series a bunch of times, and I've 
gone back and started with this one and then not followed through. So yeah, <laughs> tried it a few times. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Ryan? So I I was really excited about uh, getting back into Rogue Squadron uh, X Wing series and Rogue Squadron because the uh, the pilots of the Star Wars universe are my they're my second they're my second home uh, when it comes to Star Wars. My first is always the light side force using Jedi type setup like that's that's where I am. But if I'm not that, I'm moving into the pilots immediately. And so coming into this storyline and the and Rogue Squadron specifically. Uh, is one of my absolute favorite groups to be a part of, especially in the old EU, uh, as you follow through. It's the many iterations of Rogue Squadron as it continues to evolve through things. So coming back to its new, I'll call it a new genesis, uh, where yeah. uh, Wedge kind of says, all right, well, we had the era with Luke and we've, you know, taking out Death, the, the Death Star on Endor and everything. And we're going to give life to a lot of these characters who are just briefly showcased in uh in return of the jedi you know um you know as as pilots who are flying in and serving their 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 portion um well now we're gonna give them a little more life and then we're gonna move on and we're gonna pass it on to a new generation of pilots and we get uh, the corn horn uh kind of leading us into this new setup so i i very much enjoy this world uh and i very much enjoy this setup and i yeah, I, I'm I'm happy. I'm in Star Wars universe, whether it's old the old Legends stuff or the new canon stuff. I'm I'm happy to be surrounded by the sound of an X-wings engines behind me. You know, that's that's where I'm happy at. Heck yeah, Lauren. Okay, so the first time when you read this to me, I was just trying to catch up with all of the different species in featured in this book and all that's of the fair. different fighters and the weapons and the characters it was a lot to take in this time around i'm kind of wondering like is wedge featured in any of the books before this in the timeline or is this like the first yeah. mm-hmm. so he is. he is yeah 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 he uh he's semi-prominent in the uh Thrawn trilogy. And, well, and he, he features in the Truce at Bakura. Right. Mm-hmm. And those um, are all before this? Yeah. Um, both, both in the universe and in publishing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Truce at Bakura takes place immediately after the Battle of Endor. Like, okay. they're... They're, like, like cleaning it, up. Yeah, it starts yeah. with Wedge, like, flying through the debris, mm-hmm. like, cleaning up stuff, and he finds this, like, emergency transmission from a backwater world that he has to like shove his hand between these crystals to keep it from blowing up. And uh, oh. it's actually referenced in this book mm-hmm. where he, he talks about like spending some time on the medical frigate. Um, yes. Uh, but, but the big thing is uh, that that happened before this was the rogue squadron comics. Oh. Yeah. Oh. About those. Cause I've been collecting them. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. This book uh, it takes place two years after Return of the Jedi. Uh, those two years are covered by the X-Wing comics, which were published concurrently. Uh, same author, uh, Stackpole, did all the um, text for those. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're pretty good. Same style, same. Yeah, same and, and those basically establish the the character of uh, of Isana Sard. Mm-hmm. Oh, we already uh, know her. The villain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of tell the story of how she took over the empire. 
Uh, it's her little part of it. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, killing Saint Pestage, who was the emperor's like grand vizier, and, and uh, kind what of about her dad. Uh, oh, that's a different that story. was yeah, that was there's a story. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 yeah. As far as the writing style of this book, John mentioned it. You know, kind of the comparison between the comics and this, and how there's a pretty um, uh, consistent style with what Stackpole writes, and what would you say that style is? Um, personal opinion. So thinking back to. Uh, the <laughs> legendary episode that came out this week. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's uh, it's quite prosaic. It's uh, it's straightforward. It's easy to read. I think I read this book when I was eight. Yeah. Um, it uh, it tells you what's happening without a lot of supposition or flowery description to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, my own. I know there's kind of a Stackpole Alston debate. The two authors that wrote this series, um, I think Stackpole, in general, um, writes a better action scene. Really? But I, okay. Yep, I do. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think this book rises to the same level of characterization or even fun. Uh, that the Wraith Squadron books get to. And just for reference, that's the uh, more or less second half of this series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan, do you agree with that? I would say mostly yes. Uh, as I got back into this and started rereading, even just that opening chapter as we're coming through and we're doing in the simulation, and each time we go through uh, reading those uh, the simulations, I do agree that the, the battle sequences, it was really good. I'm sitting here going, this is actually fairly, I feel like this is really pretty well done, um, especially considering this book genre wise sits in that, that middle ground, just, uh, it's just above young adult and just like on the, the basic end of a full adult novel. Um, because that's the, at the time this was released, that's the generation that this is written for is, is this grouping right there. And we've just yeah. carried it with us. Um, which requires a, a little more simplicity in your prose. Um, a little more action. I actually, when I was looking through uh, doing some other research on it, they I found a percentage breakdown of Rogue Squadron of how much was battle sequences, how much was pr- uh, uh, preparation. Yeah, it's it's forty percent battle sequences. Uh, there, there was like forty percent battle sequences, forty percent uh, mission prep and, and uh, character interactions, and um, the other was I can't remember what the other one was, and then ten percent. Uh, romantic relationship building. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> it, pretty um, short and pretty simple, but in terms of the writing in this, it it fits right in the genre that it's aimed for. I think that you know he's not aiming to to draft this gorgeous bit of almost poetic uh, prose. It's no, it's you're in an X-wing. I want you to feel what this the, what it's like to be you know to be shifting around. Uh, dodging, having to deal with uh, the just the weight of TIE fighters around you, things like that. I want you to feel that, and he does that in the sequences, and then just moves on. You're not you're not mired in a lot of the the shades of gray of the interdictor cruiser or anything. So, yeah, it's, it's so so about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, so the, the, these novels they're not 
exactly video game tie-in novels, but they kind of are. Yeah. Um, yeah. The I mean, they kick off with a video game tie-in. So so we're yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about um, basically the birth of the Star Wars expanded universe as it was known um, in the Lucasfilm era, and so in uh, in ninety three. I believe that's when uh, Heir to the Empire, the first Zahn book, uh, the first Thrawn trilogy book was released. Also the same year that the Star Wars X-Wing video game was released. That's a a PC title um, that's pretty basic by modern standards, but um, was almost kind of a Star Wars flight simulator Mm -hmm. where you had to manage um, things like your throttle, your shield level, your gun energy, and it was kind of like a sort of sci-fi military realism approach to the Star Wars universe. Um, And so this book, uh, First Rogue Squadron, came out in 96, um, same year as Shadows of the Empire. (laughs) Um, And so it's a bit removed from the games, but the games were still coming out in this era. I think TIE Fighter came out in 95. Uh, X-Wing First TIE Fire was like 98 and I think X-Wing Alliance was the last one in 99 or 2000 um, but this book takes um, training missions from that game and, and this book, the way it describes its battle sequences about people managing their energy levels or their throttle mm-hmm. and the techniques they use in these battle scenes are taken directly from that PC game. Yeah, like the redemption scenario is in X-Wing. That, yeah, that mm-hmm. is a that's a training level in the X like you your little character gets into the simulator and you do that. Yeah. Simulator level is a training level in that game. Uh, um yeah. so they know their audience with these books. Absolutely. It, it you know, like like Ryan said, it, it was specifically aimed for a, a certain age group of young boys. Like yes. uh and We'll get into this more when we talk about Corn's character, but uh, <laughs> the the interactions, the attitudes of the characters are are geared toward a teenage boy's Star Wars fantasy, right? It's like you you may not be able to convince yourself, oh, like I'm a Jedi because you don't have the Force, but you can you could convince yourself, well, if I had the chance to fly an X-wing, I would be really good at it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this book is, is kind of allowing readers to step into the experience of being an elite X-Wing pilot, you know? Uh, I mean, Stackpole himself built it as Top Gun meets Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In so many ways. And, and he does it pretty well. You yeah. know, we, we have um, Borges' Iceman down to the physical description with the blonde hair <laughs> and the blue eyes, mm-hmm. like, you know, just picture Val Kilmer. That's yeah. that's gorgeous. Um, but uh, but on the on the prose level, there are a couple of things that do bother me. I have to admit. Go for it. Um, the <laughs> I know what this is. The the principal gripe I have is uh, this book could be a lot more concise. Specifically with like speaker tags or or um, character actions, where Stackpole has this weird tendency to, or, or or a version to using characters' names, like he doesn't ever want to say Wedge replied or Psalm 
stood up. It's like the brown-haired Karelian commander replied. Like I, I have, I have stuff like highlighted. <laughs> I like, you know, uh, the beginning of chapter two. You know, Wedge Antilles saluted Admiral Akbar, held the salute, blah blah blah. Akbar has you know one one paragraph of you know a, a dialogue, and then the brown-haired fighter pilot nodded. Just say Wedge nodded, like or or like you don't you don't need to do that. But the one that really kills me, really kills me. Is uh, when in that same chapter, Wedge and Psalm and and Akbar are you know kind of going back and forth and and they're arguing about uh, you know Tycho and and his loyalty and and Wedge is is going off about you know like the his tour of the worlds and stuff and and uh, the next paragraph this is General Psalm the next paragraph starts with. The human general in command of the Rebellion Starfighter <laughs> Trading Center at Folor smiled coolly. Come on! <laughs> that is absolutely the sort of writing that you do on your uh, high school and college essays when you have to hit a word count. Like, yeah, yeah, yep, like, yep. Let me see. How else could I describe this person? <laughs> like it's it, it gets pretty egregious at, at certain points. <laughs> that, that one definitely got an eye roll out of me. Like pulled me directly out of the book to be like, what are you doing? Well, and if you go to this dramatist persona in the uh, oh, yeah. beginning, it'll tell you um, exactly what everyone is. Right. Uh, but I, I will note, at least in my ebook file, I didn't have a chance to look at the actual book. Oh. Um, it doesn't give the rogue call signs in this book. It doesn't. Um, not even in the hard copy. Yeah, I, I feel like in maybe every single other book in the X-Wing series, it gives call signs. I'm not sure, actually. I know it does in the Wraith books. I know it does in uh, um, Asard's Revenge. Pretty sure it does in Back to War. Well, at least Part in of- this one, you know, you get your list of characters in the beginning, and it's like... <laughs> Noir Aven, a Twi'lek male from Ryloth. Me as the casual reader. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> and you, Where the hell is that? And you you, you go onto your handy-dandy Wikipedia, um, and you find out that, uh, it's like, oh, that's that's uh, Bib Fortuna, Jabba, uh, Jabba the Hutt's um, assistant, Return of the Jedi. So he looks like that. Yeah. And Ryloth is the planet those aliens are from. So, yeah, and then and the, yeah. So that there is, I I think, for the reader who, who's <laughs> into the universe and willing to dig, there's a lot of fun to be had with these characters. But a casual reader is going to be like, "What is a Shastavan?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you've been in the universe for a while, some of those are like, "Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what exactly you are." And uh, I'm getting some a few descriptions. Wait, I didn't realize you had that much hair. You know. Oh, it, it took me when I first read these books. It took me so long to put together, like Oral being a Gand and Zuckus being Zuckus. being a Gand. Where mm-hmm. I, I had a very different mental image of what Oral is. Well, for like years. And unless you collected <laughs> action figures, you don't know what a Zuckus is. Well, <laughs> he's a background character in Empire Strikes Well, but I did. I did have okay, the action right. figure. Like, I was that kind of nerd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I didn't, uh, I don't, I don't know if, if Gans weren't in the Essential Guide to Alien Species 
or I didn't get the essential guide to alien species until later. I can't remember, but like, uh, because at the time, Wikipedia didn't exist when I was reading these books. Well, My Wikipedia were the essential guides those, and the the those yeah, essential guides. source books and the source books and those essential guides. Those were um, your reference material if you were a yeah. Star Wars. It, the, the, the Steel 90s. Chronicles. Yeah, and, like you know. Yeah. Uh, that that was a big thing when you read these to me the first time was like okay tell me what this yeah, is yeah. if it's in the movie i was intimately familiar with all the every movie <laughs> and so i knew the visuals <laughs> and if you just said but i think bothans aren't even in right and you had they're to show mentioned, me but they they don't appear exactly you had to show me what <laughs> what does a bothan look like and i was like i know i i know i've heard the bothans <laughs> like i know who they are what they did so, but I don't. I had no idea what they looked like. Herbivorous rodent, <laughs> humanoid rodent. Oh well. Oh, just wait for the rodent discussion next oh, book. I can't wait to get into the uh, the polite uh, uh, sexual context. Yeah. Of this book. Oh, oh yeah, we'll get there. As a we'll get there. <laughs> can't wait. Um, but no, I, going back to what John said, you know, your opinion on um, that you think. Uh, Stackpole writes a better action sequence. I do think so. Um, uh, I I differ on that opinion, but I can understand why some people would think that way. Uh, and to compare writing style, Stackpole has a very Sanderson esque approach to action sequences. Good way of putting He's it. He's very concerned with painting the picture for you. He's like, all right, Cinematic. this is exactly you know like. This is the rudder pedal Corrin's hitting. This is how he's, you know, pulling his, uh, you know, the the pilot's yoke over. This is, uh, like, how he's rotating his ship and angling his, you know, his attack lane and all of this stuff so that you can grasp a three-dimensional picture in your head of Starfighter combat. And as an avid player of those games, it it's a total one-to-one comparison, like... Corn's doing this. Okay, I'm hitting my Z key to induce a starboard roll in my X-wing. Like I, the inputs and what the characters are doing in the game to the book are the same. Yeah, like in, and it reminds me greatly. You know, without going into detailed spoilers, a certain character in Rhythm of War uh, by Brandon Sanderson uh, fighting in the skies. Yes, that could very similar approach to combat description. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, good way of putting it. Um, yeah, I think even that my bias um, in preferring these scenes over other Star Wars action scenes is because I played those games so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they just they click for me, right? Um, or or even people who played the. Uh, Nintendo Rogue Squadron games. Or, or Squadrons. Or Squadrons. The, more squadrons, the yeah. new one, yeah, which I haven't even... Yeah, if you're coming into Legends now, uh, like reading Legends now with the current universe stuff that's there, uh, there is a lot that is consistent that I actually think that they are... You can say, oh, no, it was that way in the movies. I'm like, no, we never really adjusted a ton. Like, yeah, they talked about, you know, putting your shields, uh, you know, forward and things like that. But they never really made a big deal about the the mechanics of flight until uh -huh. you got into expanded universe content. And that has been consistent, fairly consistent in the new generation uh, 
and in the new gaming and everything. And it's because I think most of us have invested a lot, a lot of Star Wars fans have invested in the way that this works. Um, there is a handful of things that they were, they are pre-existing that people have not translated over. For example, uh, I, I, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole very far, I promise. Um, but the fact is, uh, we have in this, Corrin runs out of fuel. He has fuel, like, and has to stay on the planet here. And we get into our modern people, like, fuel's never been a thing we've had to worry about with starships. Yeah. Like, it has. Not in our core stories, but it has been something there before. So... Yeah. Oh, there's a scene in New Hope with them fueling a ship. I think that's pretty hard to avoid. Uh, <laughs> there's a giant hose hooked to this, and yeah, I can't imagine you're loading ship. torpedoes yeah. through this hose. What else is in there? But but Ryan Ryan does have a point there. I mean, uh, in our um, uh, the Star Wars Insider Volume One collection uh, that John and I reviewed a little while ago, uh, there was a point of contention in one of the new canon. Uh, starfighter based stories Blade about Squadron. how, yeah, in I think it was the second Blade Squad Squadron story, how there were things that don't work the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a plot point in that story about the uh, relative effectiveness of X Wings against AT-ATs, and in this one, in in Rogue Squadron, Roar Jace is just like, I'm, I'm gonna go wreck those AT-ATs, yeah. you know, like like. No, no question at all. But in that Blade, Blade Squadron story, it's like, oh my gosh, we need like heavy ordnance to take these down. Like you know, it's uh, there and there are different reactions to how shields work and and things like that. But, but for I mean, the most part, it, they mostly... took the 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 groundwork done by Stackpole and Alston and Zahn and Anderson and have applied it to the new canon. Well, and you look at the um, the Disney canon equivalent, which is the Alphabet Squadron series, which mm -hmm. I've only read the first, which I enjoyed, but um, from other sources I've heard, it gets much better. even better. Yeah, um, and is generally regarded as like one of the best uh, book series to come out of the new the new canon. Um, those books reference the Squadrons game. And the Squadrons game mm -hmm. references the um, the old X-Wing games, yeah. the X-Wing TIE Fire games. Um, and I think that's because these are all kind of game tie-in books. Um, mm -hmm. The mechanics from those games kind of ground the um, consistency in the way tech works, in the way combat works, because ultimately these books are... Like the characters are there, the characters are fun, but these books are about the action and the combat. Yeah, it's kind of funny that the if you look uh, at books being written, Alphabet Squadron, for example, there, uh, I just finished reading the uh, Victory's Price like a month ago on that. Um, there is a core set of agreed upon fantasy physics and pieces that we've all decided that this is okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it exists here. It exists in there, and we are okay with characters changing and a lot of those things being different and adjusting. And these new squadrons that have never been Rogue Squadron was kind of like the pilot squadron we followed, and we had Wraith Squadron there, but there wasn't a ton of squadron-based stories going on in the old EU. We stayed very heavy with our big three, um, 
uh, going through a lot of different stories there with Luke and Han and Leia and everybody. Yeah. And then we had the kind of the, the, the squadron stories. Now we're shifting and we're getting a little bit more of uh, different characters and different squadron pieces, because when you play, if you, when you play squadrons, read alphabet squadron, all of these groups are being mentioned. You've got the alphabet squadron, you've got race squadron, you've got rogue squadron. You like, and uh, as you read it and they're, and they're referencing it back and it, it is enjoyable as someone who enjoys getting into extended universe stuff to see that consistency. And it gives authors a place to come in and say, okay, there is an existing mythos here when it comes to squadrons based material that I need to work with and that I can pull from, which is why I'm really excited slash really sweating the rogue squadron film yeah. that will be coming up. Yeah. Just about to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> which, which direction do you think they're going to go with it? I, I don't think they're going to base it off of these characters. No, I think Who's in there then. Th this is so, well, what worries me about that movie, and it, it might still be good. I'm not saying this is the arbiter of like whether the movie is good or not. Um, but there's kind of a it's kind of a thing in a, in a lot of media, but Star Wars especially, where um, established rules for the universe are disregarded in favor of. Uh, what the plot needs to happen, mm -hmm. or even what the director thinks would look cool. Um, and I'm a bit worried about that with the new Rogue Squadron movie. Um, without getting too far off topic, my own prediction for that one is, is it's going to involve pilots in the sequel or even post-sequel era. I don't think it's going to reference yeah. uh, the stuff we're talking about today. Yeah, but uh, I do I'm, think it will I'm, follow the form that this book follows for the first one, where it is. I don't think we're going to come into a rogue squadron that is fully formed. It's already been around for years. Right. Where if they're smart, I think <laughs> the movie will be much stronger if it's if if it's a plot like this book or the Alphabet Squadron first novel, where it's about the formation of the team yeah. and um, or the or the first first Wraith book. Yeah, or, or yeah. something where you have misfits and they're building themselves into a cohesive team. Yeah, I think um, that's... Yeah. Part of the reason that this... Uh, one of the things about this book that I really enjoy that works is uh, it does not rely on the crutch of the Star Wars name and the characters to make you care. It's very apparent very quickly. Yeah, we, drop, we, we name drop Luke Skywalker a couple of times. Um, Wedge Antilles is the closest, uh, consistent character that we have to that, uh, so that we are creating a new group of characters to follow through. But in order to do that, this first book has to be that coming together story. And, uh, nowadays it's usually a whole bunch of people coming together and none of them get, none of them work together. Well, they're all a bunch of rogue misfits and you got to whip into shape. And, uh, that is the plot line of the first book of alphabet squadron it's not a spoiler to tell you that because that is pretty much how it works um it was interesting to go back and read this and while they're not all like super best friends and hey everybody you know we're the the rogue squadron rangers this is great hiya let's go um uh, there there is competition between them there is rivalry but there is a camaraderie that comes from a a shared purpose that exists yeah. in this more so than i i tend to notice in more modern tellings of of groups coming together well and and i think that's um i think that's realistic dare i use that term with the star wars book um but we talk about like star wars meets top gun right 
It's like, well, you have Top Gun, a very, very, very fictionalized account of U.S. Navy pilots, but ultimately they're they're coming from similar backgrounds and motivations to do the same thing. They're in the same military. They're beholden to the same uh, rules and standards, and they're probably there for very similar reasons. And so in this book, you get all these rebel pilots together. They might be from different rebel cells, different planets, but ultimately they're unified by... um, by a desire to fight the empire for whatever reason in their background, but they're all commissioned officers. They all have a certain code of conduct. They like, it's not like, you know, random freighter captain plus um, former Imperial plus, you know, like they are, that might be their backgrounds, but they all have a common experience in having similar amount of training, similar military background. And here they are, any unique squadron for a unique purpose. Yeah. A lot of times we get the, uh, what was a, a couple of the, in the nineties, there was a bunch of Disney uh, movies that were made about the, it's like little giants and the big green where it was all the misfits come together on a team. And mm-hmm. you know, they're all the worst of the worst playing, but somehow they end up beating the best of the best. This, not that all of these people yeah. are competent at what they're doing because you don't put incompetent people behind something that costs that much and it's, point them and say, go blow things up. I just hope it goes well. No, these are all competent people and you need to start from that point. I was just, the only thing I missed is there was no volleyball scene in this. I don't remember there being a volleyball <laughs> yeah. scene. Yeah, there's no zero G volleyball. Uh, yeah, grab ball. Grab ball sport. <laughs> shirt, shirtless um, sports scene in this one. I think there's, there's missed more. opportunity. There, there is one scene when Corrin's in downtime and he sees a, a feed from Commodore of a of like spike ball. Yeah, spike yeah, ball. he's he's in tap it, it, It's like it's like a football with a, a spiked football, uh-huh. and he's like, I don't even know what sport that is. Like, <laughs> and and they're all in weird like exoskeleton armor. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think this is a, a good point actually to to jump off into kind of the character discussion. Um, uh, and, and we got to start with Corin. I mean, I was going to say, do you want to get Corin out of the way? Because uh, he is the majority of the character development in this book, but it's it's also kind of a, a difficult um, a, a difficult thing to address because Corin really doesn't have much of a character arc in this book, uh, and that ties back to that um, the the purpose of this, you know, the the attraction to a specific demographic um in a lot of ways corn's a mary sue you know he is a a pretty idealized self-insert character he's like all right i'm this incredible pilot all the all the hot chicks are are after me you know like uh i i'm really smart i can like you know solve mysteries uh i i have the inquisitive nature um, Former like, Corsac agent. Yeah, like I, I have the the pedigree. I, I come from privilege, and uh, I've already got a death note on me. Like, what yeah, death mark. Death mark. Thank yeah. you. Um, and and you you get so much of his character development done at the beginning of the book, and then you're given like one flaw where he's like, oh well, I'm a a lone wolf, and I'm kind of standoffish and and mm-hmm. and a little arrogant, and then that just like gets solved right away you know like oh, with, it's like oh Lu, Lu Jane Lu Jane came through and and Wedge made a, a Corrin you know 
Wedge made Corrin do this one training mission, and now Corrin knows how to be a team player. Like, yeah, absolutely. Cor- uh, Corrin, there's a thing uh, because he is a character. You know, I I apologize if this is a spoiler, but I kind of figure old EU is a little past the uh, edge of spoilers. Um, Corrin exists in a lot of different in a lot of different stories, and his nature, his arrogance. Uh, his sense is always something that is brought up whether he actually is that arrogant or whether it's just someone's mm-hmm. perception of him. It's something that has always, he always carries his, that uh, confidence just over the line. He's never, I, I don't feel like he ever quite moves into uh, I shouldn't say that. Cause I think there might be a few instances he moves into bastard territory a few times. Um, but generally speaking, he's just really a, that super confident guy that people are like, that's you should be a little more humble. And yeah, in, in this first time, when we we're first introduced to him, if he followed the arc the way it was, he would be the most humble, pious, quiet guy, you know, seven books down the line, whatever that he's in there. He's like, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm very lucky and I'm a good pilot. That's all, you know, no, that, that doesn't fit Cornhorn's personality or anything. He's a little bit like, um, if you took James Bond and put him in a fighter pilot in a, in a jet and said, go yeah. fly this. Like that's, that's the person I think. And you don't ever let James Bond slide back into pious humility. That's not how he works <laughs> at all. And Corrin Horn has to be the same thing. A lot of things do uh, adjust about him and what he finds out about himself and his, and things, but uh, especially in this story, yes, he is uh, a bit of a Mary Sue. And um, again, it, it's a bit of a. I think that if you created the character for of Corrin Horn now, you would see a lot of changes. He would be a very different character now. Uh, yes. If they kept yeah. personality traits the way they are uh, in this book and and other books here, I would say Corrin Horn might actually be right on the edge of a villain in modern <laughs> literature and modern well, things. There's a lot of parts of Corrin, Corrin, excuse me, that. Um, even I would unironically describe his toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think this is a, a good a good point to bring up the the weird soft sexuality in in this book. Um, you know, there's there's another uh, pretty great podcast out there that focuses on Star Wars stuff called Tap Calf Transmissions, and and they you know, have remarked on this. Uh, and, and it's, it's a thing that has been discussed in, in certain circles of star Wars expanding universe fandom for a long time. Like Corrin's like kind of a, like a, a creep, like he's he, a huge horn dog. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it, but what, what makes it uncomfortable to read is the, the constant, like, referential nature of his evaluations of women mm-hmm. where he's like, well, she's really hot, but she's hotter, <laughs> uh, but she's hotter than that other one. So she, and, and she almost is as hot as that one. Like, like you can legitimately form a ranking of how hot every female character corn encounters is because he's constantly telling you, Oh, well, like the, just through this book, we haven't even met Ayala Wasiri, but we already know that, she's not as hot as Mirax or Arisi. Like, <laughs> right. The, the whole, he relates to women solely through his sexuality. So, yeah. so even female characters that 
have no romantic involvement with Corrin. They're just there. They have their own relationship or they're not interested in him or, or whatever. He's just like, well, like she's decent, but you know, not, not, not for me. Yeah, not yeah, as hot as this the, other one. <laughs> yeah. Like he, the way he describes Ayala, he, he's like, you know, just, she's yeah. very pretty, not as gorgeous as you, Arisi, but no troll either. Like, which is okay because she's Oh my married. gosh, dude. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, married, he's very so much. Yeah, he's married for now. He's very much the, the you could see Cornhorn doing the Kuzco and walking down a line of women and going, hate your hair. You're a three. <laughs> Great personality. 100%. That's exactly the sort of thing he would do. Oh yeah. Oh, Good yeah. comparison. <laughs> so I think like, there's. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, like this is this is a book very much targeted at teenage, teenage boys, boys yes. not a female audience. But yes, he's no. basically like Cusco from Emperor's New Dream. I that mean, is, that's how he approaches women. <laughs> I, sorry, Stackpole lost me in the first chapter. Without Drew, I'm done right there. Like, <laughs> wow. Oh, now, now I want to know what this is. In the yeah. first chapter? Yeah, so the first chapter is right into that um, that mission. Yeah, the Requiem scenario. Yeah. The redemption scenario. Yeah. Okay, like half of it, if, if I'm not in already to all the X-Wing moves and what the mission is and how I'm charging my shields and blah, 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 then I'm completely lost. Oh, so this is a dramatic change of subject right here. That, yeah, well. Okay. <laughs> I was like, where where does Gorn have like rampant toxic sexism in the first chapter? <laughs> no, He's in I a just simulator. He could do it. Like it was but... written not for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sure. And sure. and chapter one, I know that. That was a casual fan. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was but I was then... really confused there for a second. I was like, does he make remarks about Rasadi in the first chapter? No, like, no, 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 because <laughs> he's he's a loner still. He doesn't talk to them. Yeah. I mean he does he, 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 I will, in Corrin's defense, he doesn't rank Lujain and Rissati. <laughs> but he does describe them as beautiful. Like every woman, every human woman around him and some other species. We'll get to that. Are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you really just want a good example, jump to, I think it's chapter 31 or 32 in the book, somewhere around there. It is within paragraphs he walks away from kissing one woman and starts thinking about having sex with another one. Yes. Like that is literally it. You don't need to read much more than three or four pages and you'll, you'll get exactly what we're talking about. And I, it's chapter 31, 32, right before they get ready to take off on the final mission to, uh, to black moon. So if Reese comes to like, you know, be like, well, you know, tomorrow we may die. So why don't we have sex tonight? And he, you know, he rebuffs her and then Mirak shows up and, and has like the same thing, but she's like, oh, that was just a test, you know. Which is an argument I have used many times. We may die tomorrow, so we might as well, but it just does not fly the same way if you're not a sexy fighter pilot. Yeah. I guess, so. But it, I mean, it does kind of objectify these other pilots, these female pilots in his 100%. mind. 100%. And I, and it's. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and this is where, you know, that, that kind of um, major step up in my mind uh, comes with race squadron with race squadron yeah. is that each of the characters in race squadron is, is a person with feelings and motivations and flaws. And in this, a lot of the other pilots are literally just a background set piece. I mean, 
what do we know about Peshk? Nothing. Who? Absolutely nothing. And then he just gets it's, murdered by an ion cannon. Like, yeah. and then what do we know about Endurmi? Like, she's a hunter, I guess. And then she just dies. Like, and but it doesn't mean anything. Though. Yeah. And and what do we know about Rasadi? Like, she's hot. She's from Bespin. Okay. You know, Cor- like Corin finds her attractive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do we know about Lu Jane? She's nice and she's hot. Like, <laughs> they're double whammy. We don't. <laughs> We don't know what really like drives the other characters or what conflicts they have. Um, it's really just focused on corn and wedge. Like it's. And, and, and um, what's his butt. And if you want, if you want the, the, the okay. full breakdown of our race squadron books, we have already recorded episodes on uh, race squadron, iron fist and solo commands. So, Go check those out uh, on on the Inking Out Loud feed. Um, hmm. We may record re-record those at some point in the Hold future on. and go a little more in depth. But you've done all the race squadron books, and you haven't no. done Courtship of Princess Leia. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have not. Speaking of weird sexuality things in, in the Star's Expanded Universe, right <laughs> uh, we have covered other books by the author who who wrote Courtship of Princess Leia, though. Who is that? Uh, David Farland, or Dave Wolverton, as oh. his real name is, wrote The Rune Lords. Right. Okay. Those were some of our very first episodes on Inking Out Loud. But, uh, but yeah. Um, Corn character. Uh, Bland. Mary Sue. In this book. Yes. Uh, yeah. He becomes a more complicated he, character further on. To, to Stackpole's credit, like, yeah. <clears throat> this book, you might come away thinking that Corn is your least favorite person. In the Star Wars <laughs> universe, including the Empire. But <laughs> by the time you, I mean, this is way into the weeds, but by the time you get to I, Jedi, which is a first-person novel from Corrin's perspective, he's a much different, much more mature character. And I, I doubt Stackpole had that kind of <laughs> foresight in mind when he started writing the guy, but he does develop and he does yeah, absolutely grow. And I, and I will say, like, in this, I was kind of shocked at how immature he is. Truthfully. Like, I'll give you an example. So, right away in one of the first training missions, he has to be taught a lesson. And they yep. give his, his data to everybody flying the canyon behind him. He does not take it well. And he does not take it well. And he has to, he goes straight to Wedge, and he's all grumpy. And... You know, as as somebody who went through intelligence and went after illegals, you'd think that he'd be more mature than that, but apparently not. That I actually think um, that's an interesting moment in the story because I know this, uh, this is probably not what Stackpole was aiming to do or anything, but that is a uh, key moment in another sci-fi genius uh, pilot story in Ender's Game, where basically the 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 game is turned against them. They're yeah. the, all the rules yeah, yeah. are changed and whatever, and yeah. they get upset and frustrated. And it's pretty common in uh, I know Star Wars science fiction fantasy. I'm not going to play this semantics game of that in science fiction and space fantasy it is pretty common to change the rules of a game 
uh, like that to try and make your character grow and give them a place to go. And I think it was uh, interesting in this situation to have him to have him do that and come out of it. I, I don't know. It felt it's very formulaic. He came out of it and he was frustrated and everything. But did he learn the lesson? Did he grow from it? Like, do you feel like he actually caught what was what he was being supposed to learning? What he was supposed to learn from that? Maybe. <clears throat> Maybe. Yeah. Corn. Corn in this book. So we keep saying we doubt that Stack will have this in mind when he was writing it, but. Um, if you get into the Star Wars EU, you do get to watch this character grow. And yeah, in Rogue Squadron book one, Corrin is a douche. <laughs> and he's unapologetic about it, and he develops hardly at all. Um, but you do eventually get to see this man become uh, a good husband, a good father. It takes a while. It takes literal decades yeah. in the universe. But... Um, he is a dynamic character. If you hate him in this book, but you still think the book is fun, stick with it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I will say he highlights all the other characters then because he is so, you know, motionless. You've got all these other characters that really have a lot more depth to them and you see that because he's he doesn't have that, you know. To a certain extent, yeah. Uh, but I would also say that because we're pretty locked in his perspective, we get limited understanding of these characters because we're having to see him through his eyes and he's not really seeing them quite. He hasn't developed the eyes to see the people the way that we as an audience would learn best through them yet. Um, there are a couple uh, There are a couple other characters in here that we don't see through Corrin's eyes that I think we get there. And that's mainly the Imperial side of things. Um, yeah. Yeah where we get to, to deal with that in a slightly different way. That is something also that has been a, a, a transition, I believe. I could easily be proved wrong. Um, over the last 20, 25 years or so, you know, the span of my life or, or, or more, um, the amount of point of view perspectives that we get in our literature now is increasing. Um, it's more yeah. common to have, you're following three or four to five characters in a story now, wherein especially like a lot of the early fantasy I remember reading, it was your main character, your villain, maybe a third character or a side character that goes off. Uh, and and a lot of those stories were written in a more omniscient narrator as well. It wasn't a close third person, you know, though that really kicked off in like the 80s and, and really kicked off in the 90s with the Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, with this, uh, in Rogue Squadron, yeah, we have really three points of view. We have corn wedge, curtain, curtain lure. And, uh, and, and if you, you know, as you keep reading through the Rogue books very quickly, we, even in the next book, you know, this is something we'll talk about more when we get to Wedge's Gamble, but there are more points of view in the second book, this starts off very basic in terms of like which characters we're getting anchored by in the narrative. What do we think about um, Curtin Lore as a character, as an antagonist? I was just about to jump because I have another question about Curtin Lore specifically, because this book 
is post heir to the heir to the empire. And Please. how well, do you, how do you go from uh, published? Yeah, it's, I, I saw the, so lore, what is his special ability? He has eidetic memory. He remembers everything. Yep. And that gives him the ability to always be able to remember like in early sequences, uh, he's first uh, interrogating, uh, he goes into interrogate. What's his, well, what's his face? Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> he goes in there. He says, yes, I remember this, uh, this about you. And I remember this about you. And it's supposed to be like his superpower. And like, we've seen this not eidetic memory, but the breaking down of races and groups and understanding through understanding their art and these other pieces of it in Thrawn. Is this enough of a variation or was it repackaging the Russian knockoff version of Thrawn and sending it out there for us to read? So there, there is something to be said there where our, at, at this point in the Star Wars universe, our non-Sith bad guys, um, they have, they all, they each come from like kind of a Sherlock Holmes kind of investigator type character type. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big difference between Thrawn and Lore, um, I mean, Thrawn basically is Sherlock Holmes. It's kind of his character. Yeah. Um, Lore has a bit of that. However, a big motivating factor for him is his insecurity and his position as a subordinate. Yeah. So through him, we get to see Isard, who's, who's really the, organizationally speaking, the main antagonist of the, of the X-Wing books, at least the first half. Um, and so we get to see his fear of her and how his primary motivator is less his ideology less his own grand scheme of things, but like, how do I please my master and how do I stay alive? Yeah. And I think that at a certain point undermines this book because he's the principal antagonist for this story, but he never feels threatening. Uh, He starts off being undercut. He starts off being outsmarted despite having this, you know, incredible memory and then we're like, okay, well, we don't respect him as a villain. We respect Isard as a villain. She comes off threatening, but Lure never does. And so it's tough to really feel that narrative tension coming from the principal point of view antagonist in the story. Well, I think timeline-wise... We aren't quite at a place, uh, early 90s, where we're allowed to let the bad guys win very often or to do that. They need, they can have moments, but we can never feel that they are truly going to win. I mean, yes, even in the Star Wars universe, Empire Strikes Back, the bad guys won. There is precedent for it. But in literature, we, it's, we, I don't recall a whole lot of instances of, the villain being truly terrifying or scary uh, early on in this sort of setup. Whereas nowadays it's like, yeah, villains can get away with a lot of stuff that they wouldn't beforehand. Um, I think if just a little adjustment in that opening scene where instead of the, uh, instead of the spy going through and being like, yeah, no, the reason you haven't been able to catch them is because I've literally been leading you on for two years 
And every time you started to drop off, like I dropped you another clue. Like if at the end of that sequence, he goes, oh yeah, no, I know where Corrin is and here it is. And all of a sudden he's winning. Ooh, now we have a villain right. that we're like, oh, we're, we're nervous about, but he's not allowed the chance to win because especially that early in a book, uh, when fantasy book sales are still kind of a growing thing, it's, you know, I, I think they're just nervous. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an editor type thing that was like, no, we can't, we can't let them win that early. It'll, the boys won't like it. There's a reason why the black company in the mid eighties was so groundbreaking, giving victories to antagonists constantly in that series. Yeah, it, it is, it was the, the grandfather of grimdark in a lot of ways. And so, uh, that, that type of storytelling hadn't fully caught on and it was really uh, a song of ice and fire that totally broke through um and and allowed this to happen i mean this book i mean what what year did this book come out 96 yeah so in that that was the year a game of thrones was published but a game of thrones when it was published did not do particularly well uh, it, it was not until a, a year or two later when Robert Jordan supplied a cover quote for it and they, you know, repackaged the book, gave it a new cover art and, and then it took off. And, uh, and, and even then it wasn't like this world shattering phenomenon, the way that the TV show has made it out to be like when, when the TV show uh, came out, a song of ice and fire was nowhere near the most uh, popular fantasy series out there you know it, it was still heroic fantasy like the wheel of time uh you know, even sort of truth sold more than uh a song of ice and fire uh it, and it, so it's really only been in the last like 10 15 years that that type of storytelling has become popular and not just present and there is a very explicit example of that in the Star Wars universe, and that's the NJO. Right. Yes. And we're a ways off from that. And and look, when the NJO came out, ninety-nine? Yeah, uh people hated it. Yeah, I hated, hated book it. one so yeah. much. Vector so much. I actually say say what it is. Ve- Vector Prime, should we just spoil it? What? No, I just mean like NJO. Oh, oh the, new, the new Jedi. The new Jedi order. Order. Yeah. That and that, I mean we're gonna do our own. Yeah, we'll, of that yeah, we'll do episodes eventually. But that was um, that that was the Star Wars property at the time. You know, creators or owners, I guess, deciding that the series was stagnant with the Imperial bad guy of the week being incompetent, losing, bad guys win, everybody's fine. Um, and they decided to do that series pretty dramatically, which I don't think we should spoil at this point with the first book. No, I should not. Um, Lauren has not read this. Very, very competent villains, very different villains, not Imperials. Um, yeah. Really a game changer for Star Wars and and people hated it because I was nine yeah. when that book came out and it was very upsetting for some people. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember. For me. Yeah, I, I remember hard, hard pushback yeah. against against the direction I took. And so like Curtin Lure just is not that kind of character. And honestly, like what about Isard? 
so Isard uh, is set up as more threatening. There's not enough of Isard, but to she do doesn't that. do anything in this book. Not True. this one. You know, she's she's kind of a background shadow in this one. She yeah becomes more of a thing. Yeah, we'll in... we'll talk about her a lot more with Wedge's gamble. Yeah. Well, she really becomes the villain in three and four. Yes. Yeah. Um. Uh. Other characters. Uh. Let's let's talk about Arisi and Mirax. Yeah. Actually, that's. <laughs> so which one is hotter than you? Uh, uh, Arisi is hotter, according oh, to Corin. Okay. Yeah. If you go by the Corin scale of women, Arisi. Uh, excuse me. Um, uh, She's a yeah. solid Corin eight. Mirax, <laughs> Mirax, quote, didn't surrender much, if anything at all, to Arisi in the way of looks. Much, if anything at all. So yeah. she's very close, but just just a hair just, below. Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She um, just didn't have that one mole. I would just. I'd, she'd probably be right there. You know. Yeah. yeah. If her dad wasn't who he was. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, Reese, let's see. She, her contribution is that she is an heiress for a Bacta company, which is a vital medical supply. Um, and she comes from the planet Thyfera, which, so she's more or less a political appointee for the squadron. And then there's Mirax. Who likes to have her flight suit unzipped. Right. Quite well. She likes the, the suggestive. Uh, lots of cleavage. Lots of cleavage. Yeah. Yeah, Again, that's, that's how I usually wear my flight suit, but it does not seem to get the same response. So. <laughs> <laughs> you pick up one of those flight suits from the, uh, the Disney theme park. <laughs> yeah. I walk around Galaxy's Edge, and I've got that thing zipped all the way down, and I just no one is. Oh, next time, next time I'm going, I'm right there with you. Um, really? Because you know it seems to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> um. But then we have Mirax, who's an old friend of Wedge's. For some reason, he doesn't feel the need to comment on her relative attractiveness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, she's a she's a smuggler's daughter. So for for Corin, uh, who's um, a cop, yeah, he's he's like Corellia's equivalent of the FBI, I guess, or the DEA, uh, or the DEA, yeah. yeah, you know, planetary law enforcement agency. He's like, oh, she's. She's a criminal's daughter, but she's kind of hot. Someone to talk to her. Yeah. Well, at, at, first, uh, at I, first, I will say I appreciate the scene where um, Mirax comes to him with the kind of the care package from Corellia mm. uh, that mm-hmm. she got very, very overpriced because M-Tray is freaking cutthroat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we should talk about M-Tray. Yeah. M-Tray, yeah, yeah. M-tray, I'm sorry. m is the best character <laughs> yeah. in the book. No. Uh, but, but... Mirax, like, um, yeah, she she falls into some tropes, some female character Just tropes, uh, but she at least brings a different dynamic to the book. Thank God for her. You know, yeah, like, she is a bit refreshing. Because, like, I, I gotta say, like, when she came onto the scene, I was like, oh, cold hard bitch, here we go. <laughs> like... <laughs> here's Here's an actual female character that's allowed to be a female character. Like with motives and 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 like ambitions. She's more than just a harem piece for the. That's major. right. She's not but a she political. is also that. But she is in fact also a harem. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> she can multitask. That's that's Stagpole's fault. Yeah. But yeah. She. Right. She she's independent. She takes her own action. If anything, um, 
I, I say this as a credit for a Star Wars video game tie-in book that came out in 1996. She rescues Corrin. Right. At the end of the book. Yeah. 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 There, there is a conscious subversion of a trope. Yes. Yeah. Like maybe pretty on the nose by modern standards, but for the time, I, I think credit where credit is due. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, to start the conversation, sometimes you got to hit them on the nose to get, to get the attention. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't need Corrin's help to rescue her. No. Until she does. But well, fine. except at the beginning. In the beginning, she <laughs> At the does. beginning. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Um, but that's not her fault. But that's also a great sequence. I mean, it, yeah, it's it's a good. Action. It's not like oh, she's a damsel in distress, and Corin is specifically the hero. It's like the author needed to put them in the same room together, so had to manufacture a situation well, know, well, to get and, them there. And then she saves him because she like grabs him and pulls him to the planet. Well, yeah, yeah. He, she like docks his X-wing on. Yeah, on yeah. Skate. So she saved him too. As I'm thinking about Mirax, I'm actually. Um, I'm actually more impressed the more I think about it because she she's not a damsel in distress nor just a harem piece. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she's not strong female character TM. Um, she's not her own Mary Sue. She's not all about her own empowerment and the diminishment of any other male figure in her life. She's if she's actually kind of believable. Yeah. Yes. Character. Um, she's a normal person who has believable reactions to the situations that she finds herself and in. And believable motivations. Yeah. Like she doesn't throw herself at corn. Ever. No, yeah. no, she doesn't. Ever. Uh unlike Arisi. Oof. Who's Which, just like, oh, let me let me pull let in, me pull my tits out. Like in, in Arisi's defense, <laughs> and I don't want to spoil the series. Arisi has motivations. Yes, for yes. she is. She does. Um, but but yeah. Uh, do do we have anything else for for Mirax and Arisi, or or shall we talk about M Let's talk about M <laughs> Best M-Tray, character. M-Tray. <laughs> so I I thought he was going to be boring at first, and then we have that scene where all of a sudden he goes into a different protocol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Corn's like, can you just like scrounge it for me and Amtray's like head does the exorcist thing and then he winks at him and he's like scrounging protocol initiated different, like, different voice and all yeah <laughs> I love Amtray so great I didn't, so I didn't quite get what was going on I was pretty confused the first time around <laughs> until you know Wedge explains it later on Oh, he's like, yeah, we discovered that M-Tray actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. had this whole other M- life much... and he's been programmed this way. Yeah. Later book in the series. Um, but the, the other scene with M-Tray that I love is when Wedge is like flying over to home one uh, to meet with Admiral Akbar, and M-Tray just like invites himself onto the <laughs> shuttle and Wedge is like, uh, what he's like, I have things to take care of over there and won't say anything else. <laughs> he's, he's the uh, the, the cryptic AI character, he's... he starts off as obnoxious, <laughs> and then you find out that he had like two crates of this super expensive Corellian whiskey. Like, oh <laughs> and he's been doling it out in, over the black market, making a killing. Like, <laughs> what, what is what does Mirak say? Like, the the one or the two bottles that she bought 
she gave one to Corin and put the other one in the Rishkate. And she's like, those two bottles were like half a year's income for her. <laughs> and Trace price gouging. He's a, he's, he's, he's a shit lord. Like the, the guys on Facebook on the secondary beer market. <laughs> he's like, oh, well, uh, I had access to the, the side project in-person limited release of Derivation 13. So I'm going to sell these bottles for $1,800 a piece. <laughs> It's it's, it, it's pretty <laughs> common in comic relief. Yeah, that's really the thing is uh, in Star Wars, comic relief is often droid centric. It's like they want to. Yeah. Unfor- yeah. It's yeah. usually though most of the time it's yeah, especially in early stuff. It's R two and C three PO and their wacky adventures and you know the whole droids cartoon and it's. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we want to do comedy. And so it is fun to watch. Uh, that That is a consistent piece through a lot of Star Wars, even now, literature. There is uh, one subversion of that, actually, in Alphabet Squadron. There's a droid that acts as a therapist that I really I, I really loved it. I was like, wow, that is a very interesting way to, do, to take that. And yeah. it's torture droid, not just a droid, it's a, a torture, torture droid. droid. Like yeah. the one from, yeah. Yeah, EV nine V nine. Yeah, love that. I love that whole setup. But com- yeah, it's it's usually this. So this is just like, hey, we're gonna continue with the com- droid comedy, but we're gonna do it in a little more adult Caddyshack style rather yeah. than yeah. yeah, you know, wacky <laughs> dude. <way> put it. <laughs> yeah, and we we really do have to keep remembering this when this book came out. Um, right. Like Knights of the Old Republic wasn't a thing. HK-47 wasn't a thing. Um, You know, interesting AI characters like in Battlestar or Mass Effect, they weren't a thing yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, slightly different droid comic relief, like probably one of the more imaginative parts of this book. Yeah, I I love it. Um, But uh, do you have any other... Oh, sorry. I would just say, if if you haven't really read through this a lot or anything and you want a, an equivalent droid story now the ig 11 droid from mandalorian that yeah. follows him he follows that style it's the interactions are comedic because they're situational he's not trying to be funny um it's the same m3 is pretty much the, or m is pretty much the same way uh in that just it's it's a, a character situational piece that creates comedy based on what he's doing that just seems out of character for someone for something like that to do. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I was going to say, if we don't have any other character points, Oral. Oh, you want to talk about Oral? Oral. Oral's yeah. just a bro. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate him because he's, he's one of the first aliens that I didn't know of that got really explored. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Twi'leks I knew as slaves, obviously from the movies, but I didn't really know any other aliens. The, the movies don't have, still don't have strong alien characters. No, they don't. And the whole point of the rebellion or the new Republic at this point is that they are the inclusive, non-discriminatory faction. The empire is the specious um, sexist, you know, fascist, sexist fa- faction. Hey, they're um, not sexist. And, they have a woman leader now. 
Well, right. Yeah, well, that is, they yeah, talk yeah. about that though. Yeah, tokenism. That is a, a major departure from the EU, like the Legends EU and the current expanded universe, where they've they pretty much left the sexism by the wayside. Yeah. Whereas in Legends, anytime a woman rises to power in the Empire, it is noteworthy. It's a big deal. Like, I mean, we we have the the bit with um, Captain Elor. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, in in this book and and Kurt and Lure remarks on like how how like powerful a presence she is and and how competent she must have been to even rise to like the level that she got no, to no. she got exiled to to go serve under Thrawn in the unknown region because she's a woman and she she got sent off into you know limbo with all the other aliens and women and then post Endor is like well finally like we didn't have enough uh, male surviving commanders, so we had to start promoting based on merit, and she got command of an interdictor cruiser. Yeah, but, but I was saying that's that's discrediting right there. Like he he gives her credit, and then he's like, "Well, we didn't have enough men, so." Well, well that's no, the no, it, the empire. Though. Yeah, it, that's, yeah. It, it wasn't, and in his head, it wasn't that we didn't have enough men, so she got a, like promoted. It was that because of the attrition of the war the Empire had to start promoting based on merit. He he specifically points he out, I think he merit. says like some semblance of merit. Like he's even aware of the discrimination. Uh, the, the, what, what's the, the non, non-human track? Yeah. Like with the M in human capitalized, it's like, you know, where it's like, if you're, if you're not a human male, you're, you know, persona non grata in, in the Empire. Uh, but in the in the new canon, that's there was like you know women commanders and and admirals and moths all over the place. So to a certain you know. extent, they still do address it a bit uh, there. But if you ever want to knit, right, you know, if anybody out there, you need to write an interesting college thesis. Write sexism in the empire, uh, <laughs> and you've got a good a good start to a great thesis there uh, for for your writing. But yeah, that's a great idea. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I have a, just a couple of like miscellaneous points uh, before we get to our favorite scenes. Um, a, a, some lore points that that stood out to me. Uh, wings, fighter wings. Mm-hmm. I think this is about the only book that I can remember that describes a fighter wing as being three squadrons instead of six squadrons. Yes. General Psalm's Defender Wing yeah. is three squadrons of Y-Wings. The Eviscerator, uh, Star Destroyer with six squadrons of TIE Fighters, is described as carrying two wings. Um, it, like Every other Star Wars book has a wing as six squadrons. And I, that's always always been one of those like, huh. Well, I, I don't know if it's an inconsistency so much as a... The Empire is very uniform. Like, a, an order of battle unit is what it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Rebellion, now New Republic, still still not totally standardized, still growing. Um, a wing could refer to a ceremonial designation or something that just kind of happened de facto. Yeah. Maybe it was a wing. Maybe they lost that many in the... Last the thing, year the thing that just gets me is that, like, I could, I could see that explanation for New Republic contingents, 
but they specifically describe an Imperial Star Destroyer as having two wings of TIE Fighters, three oh. squadrons each. Yeah. Whereas every other book has a Star Destroyer carrying one wing, six right. squadrons. Yeah. yeah. So the, like, I, I'm, this is me. This is Drew <laughs> being nitpicky. Uh, but you know, like, I'm, I'm not going to get into the, uh, my complaints about like the length of an executor class star dreadnought, well, uh, you know, but <laughs> there, there is just another lore point. Um, trying to make it quick. There's two camps basically in the star Wars EU, um, for like detail. Um, one is a maximalist interpretation where numbers and unit sizes and logistics reflect what, um, what a galactic conquest would actually entail in a realistic setting. Um, where like one individual star destroyer isn't that big of a deal. Um, you know, it's one large ship of the line, but like it's just one ship, it's not a big deal. And then yeah. you have kind of a minimalist interpretation of the Star Wars universe where one star destroyer is a big deal and rep represents significant investment, um, you know, by the Empire in a given planet or situation. Um, and our two, three more or less favorite Star Wars authors all subscribe to this more minimalist idea. Yes. Zahn, Stackpole, Alston. Like one Star Destroyer is a BFD in one of their Star Wars books. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. si since then, newer, newer material, newer authors, um, it's very much not the case. So that, that can lead to some inconsistency, but I, I really don't think it's a problem for the narrative. Some of that no, I feel like I has to do with the narrative either. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that I think is people, there is this feeling of trying to scale up uh, the universe and so that. Cause I, I would fall into the min more of the minimalist camp as well, because uh, if you really start looking at that, the, the other side of that coin and you say, okay, then let me go ahead and throw the prequels in here. How the hell do you do a blockade on a planet? How many ships do you need to blockade a planet? Like, Oh, oh yeah, there's yeah. you're all around the perimeter. I guess I'll just go through the top. Yeah, right. and, yeah. and you go go to Camino where they're like, we have two hundred thousand units and a million more on the way, and you're like, there are tens of thousands of planets. Yeah, what are you going to put ten clones on each planet? Like <laughs> that's how I play Risk. So I mean, it's yeah. Well, <laughs> we were just watching Phantom Menace this past year, and my wife was like. Are they blocking the planet if they're just right there? And I, I came up with all these explanations. <laughs> it's so like, yeah, you got a point. Like you're not going to cover the whole planet with ships. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think my main argument was the whole like escape vector. It's like well, uh -huh. the area they're going in, where the capital is located, they can just right. centralize in that area rather than like if they fly over here, it's going to take a little more time. You Whatever. might be able to get but, in, but you won't be able to get out. To like I. The, the moral of the story is if you try to apply too much realism to Star Wars, it does not no. go well. <laughs> no. The framework these, does not support. Yeah. The, these Rogue Squadron books are a pretty good happy medium. Yeah. Um, between pure fantasy space opera and hard military sci-fi. I think they're, they're a, nice, a nice middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do, do you guys have any other like miscellaneous points or, or lore things to, to bring up? 
There, there is one thing that uh, I'm, I'm going to bring it up because I know that even though he's not dead, the ghost of Todd is haunting me at this moment uh, <laughs> over my shoulder from the legendarium. Uh, I appreciate because these have a connection to a video game and because of the era in which they are written, um, space combat does not necessarily adhere to space combat rules the same way that we see a little bit more so now. Um, it's not the expanse. Yeah. I, I literally had that thought earlier as I was talking about it. I'm like, we're not dealing with the the science of the expanse or the language of the expanse or anything like that. It's very much uh, the feel of you're going banking a turn. Well, that's not really quite how space works the same way you, you know, that's one thing I really uh, I thought was fun in the squadrons game. They, uh, they created now that we have the ability, the ability to do the immediate flip around the immediate turn and, you know, firing someone behind you. That's not something you see a whole lot in this, uh, in this book series, but it is something in more modern Star Wars, you are, they are taking into account a little bit more that space battle uh, is different. And so a lot of times you'll see things brought into atmosphere so that it can be written in a more comfortable area and a more comfortable and uh, easily recognizable space for us. Star Wars is, for all intents and purposes, movies, games, books, uh, World War II in space. That's what Lucas wanted. That's what these games emulated. That's what these books emulate. And so the starfighters behave like World War II aircraft where you have close range dogfighting, uh, limited use of warheads, um, you know, rapid fire, zooming in on your opponent's tail. It's not like actual fighter combat in the real world yeah. where you have engagement with a single missile beyond the line of sight. That wouldn't be super exciting to read. read yeah, the, when they talk about like zeroing in their, their laser cannons at like uh, 500 meters. Yeah. 250. Or, or even 250. Yeah, and it's like... Uh, the range of at the speed they're moving <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> even world war ii standards it's extremely short yeah but um but yeah shall we kind of talk about our three favorite scenes yeah start start wrapping it up here um sure. what do you say like take it in rounds start with our third favorite scene okay lauren how about you you kick it off all right so i think my third favorite is the first chapter introduction of Tycho Selju. No, As he you can't just... have that one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he just go kicks on, his butt on. and just casually walks out of the simulator like, hey, sup? <laughs> He's like, I'm a little rusty. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> rusty. It's been a minute since I've been in, you know, tie fighter. <laughs> yeah. John, what about you? Uh, third favorite, I really like uh, just the conversation between Akbar and Wedge when when Wedge is talking about forming the squadron because like I have this background idea of like what Rogue Squadron was in the comics and in the old game and um, it kind of has this feel of like a like a Kelly's Heroes or a Dirty Dozen where Wedge has like this idea, this concept, and he's trying to get his commanding officer to buy into it. And I, I just, I like the dynamic between Wedge and Akbar. Nice. Yeah. Ryan. So my third favorite, and please don't judge me for this, uh, what I will call the hardest fail of the Bechdel test ever, 
um, is the conversation between Arisi and um, uh, Mirax right before Black Moon. <laughs> nice. Yes. It, it made me laugh. I was just, I was reading through it and it made me laugh really hard. Like this, this does not, it, it makes sense in, in, in the context of the story of what we're doing. Like I, I'm not complaining that it doesn't make sense. That it doesn't fit in the story, but this no longer computes for me. Like this, this sort of conversation no longer computes <laughs> the eye size, the dagger. I'm going to ruin your career over this. No, no. Yeah. Hardest fail the Bechtel test made me laugh. <laughs> Nice. I, I like the way you put that. <laughs> yeah, this this book definitely does not pass the Bechdel test. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and for for any listeners who who may not know what that is, uh, the Bechdel test was uh, kind of a, a thought experiment from a a famously feminist writer named Alison Bechdel, uh, a, a, like a baseline test to see like if a book could even approach being feminist. And it's uh, like whether you can have a conversation between two women in which they do not talk about a man. There, there, there's more aspects to it than that, but that's the the basic. Uh, uh, and, and that definitely does not happen in Rook Squadron. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, my, my third favorite scene is Tycho and Corrin working together uh, when Corrin's dead in space and Tycho doesn't have any guns. And, and Tycho's dancing mm-hmm. his little Lambda shuttle through and getting, uh, you know, sensor locks for Corrin. I just, I love that. Good action. Lauren, second favorite? Uh, that's tricky for me. <sighs> I don't know. Maybe maybe M-Tray's head flipping around. <laughs> <laughs> When this ground protocol is enacted. Yeah, that's that's my second favorite as well. So <laughs> I love that. Uh, John, what about you? Uh, my second favorite is where Corin uh, works with the Y-Wings to blow up the Lancer frigate, the, mm. the, the screening frigate. Because um, I play a lot of Star Wars strategy video games and these little Lancer bastards just sit there and (laughs) light up all your fighters, you know, no hope of survival. Um, And it's referenced that way in the book too. I mean, it all comes from source material. And so, um, you know, Corn comes up with this plan to use the Y-Wings torpedo locks to direct them into this picket cruiser. And I just think it's, it's it's good action. It's well written. It makes sense within the confines of the universe, and it's just it's very satisfying. It's always yeah. fun to see good tactics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it uh, makes good tactics sense. things that, that that you would not expect. Like I always, I love moments like that. Yeah, and, and we get a you know a good little bit of narrative tension with uh, you know the the rookie warden squadron, and and one guy is is too shaky, and he launches his torpedoes a. a like two seconds late and now Corin's like yeah. under the gun, you know, it's a, it's a very well written action. So yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah. Lauren, what's your favorite First, scene in the book? Oh, okay. So I love the scene where, um, Corin lore meets Hassan Isard. Ooh, nice. For the first time. And the way they set that up with her, in front of the backdrop of Coruscant 
and there's like red strip of carpet and like her just he doesn't even he thinks he's going in to be killed because mm-hmm. he failed and he doesn't know who he's meeting at all and just this like opulent space in, in a city where there is no space yeah and yeah, then this that, that evil was a really like good like framing scene for it's a great yeah yeah did you know that Asana Sart has two different colored eyes? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get more into her character later in this, in this series. Yeah. Uh, John, what's your favorite? Uh, my favorite. Um, I, I just, it's another action scene. I just really love the assault on uh, Borlaos, where Wedge kind of does his own version of the trench run to take out the power conduits so that they can get in. It's, um, it's kind of funny because in the, the N64 Rogue Squadron game, which is a lot more arcade-y, uh, less, less of a simulator than the PC X-Wing games. But anyways, that game takes all these missions from the books and the comics and like puts them in the game. So there's a mission in that game that's literally like the same thing as what happens in... Uh, this battle in the book uh-huh. and I just I, I like the uh the idea of like a Star Wars starfighter doing like ground ground attack and close air support it's it's unique you don't you don't see it a lot um and I love Wedge as a character just um in, in these kind of goofy space fantasies it's I just really appreciate competent characters who know what they're doing yeah, and, yeah. Aren't, and aren't necessarily just a trope. Um, he's just a guy who's good at his job and, and I, I like him more than all the other characters. Which, nice. what about yeah. Jansen? Yeah. Uh, well, Jansen's, Jansen's not in this book. That's yeah. Like, yeah. I know. Jansen, yeah. Those are, those are different. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, what's your favorite scene? So this is not so much a specific scene, but a really nice arc that I really enjoyed. It's uh, we're, we're in the closing of the book. Uh, since you took Tycho from me, I love Tycho. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. He, we didn't really talk a lot about him, but I love him. I love his yeah. dedication and his selflessness. He's, I adore him. Um, but in it's the arc of going from we're rogue squadron uh, before they go fly this. They don't know that they're going back. Basically, they don't know that they're going to be doing this. Say so we're rogue squadron and this mission. The only reason we're getting it is because it's not likely to succeed unless anyone other than rogue squadron does it. So there's not much chance we're coming back and they have a little bit of, they have that rebellion hope paired with the despair of likely like this is old school rebellion. We're here for, this is survival type stuff. Um, We go through the battle sequence uh, kind of finishing up there and then we wrap it up. uh, And surprisingly, we only have one loss, right? I think from her, it's only one, one pilot loss because Kip, uh, not Kip. Wow. That jumped me into a totally different series. Kip. Yeah. <laughs> Kip Duron is now over here. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh Corin. Sun Crusher to Borlaos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we close out with Corin. Uh Corin Corin's message, uh, just kind of right before the airport. Like, I'm not upset at you guys for leaving me. I'm not any of those things. Uh that is probably the closest thing to Corin showcasing the growth from the beginning to the end. That's his his uh moment. And it showcased for me the ideal of what rogue squadron's personality as a group has to be uh that that arc right there at the end and 
So it, it makes sense that if the first part of the book is them figuring out and getting into Rogue Squadron, yeah, as competent, that the end is we see Rogue Squadron in its most terrifying form where they're all competent, doing well, and pulling off things that nobody else should pull off. I, it's a great way to close the first book. Nice. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. It, that's um, that's one of the things I love most about this series is so often in Star Wars, you have the plucky good guys beating, you know, these incredible odds. And a lot of the time it's kind of kind of an eye, eye roll trope sort of a thing like that within the bounds of this universe that shouldn't be possible. But with the Rogue Squadron books, it's it makes sense. You have very competent pilots tactics that make sense and it's more satisfying from like a hard sci-fi perspective if that's the, the right way to put it sure yeah. yeah yeah um yeah so my favorite scene was one i mentioned already uh it was mirax coming to corin with her little peace offering <laughs> uh and just ha- them having this this moment of you know mutual understanding uh connecting despite their differences um, uh, it, it's Mirax being genuine and not trying to manipulate him the way she does the next time they hang out. Uh, uh, like there's, and, and I think it's, it was really smart of Stackpole to put that immediately after uh, the scene with Arisi trying to get in Corrin's pants, and like trying to manipulate Corrin um, and, and showing sort of this uh, dichotomy that, 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 Arisi and Mirax are, are foils for each other where uh, Arisi is is very goal oriented and and is viewing Corrin as something to to like a goal to achieve like uh, something to use and Mirax is viewing Corrin as a person to get to know and understand so I, I really liked that but uh, yeah so I think at, at that point um it's time to head into the final draft, yeah? Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, curious. Yeah, Ryan, what have you been drinking over there? <laughs> well, so I knew about the final draft, but as Drew knows, I, I don't drink. Um, but I decided to brew something up and uh, uh, because I do enjoy mocktails. I do enjoy say that. So I just went in. I'm like, what do I have? What do I have here? And I, I will call it the... I'll just go back to the classic. It's a, a simple binary sunset. Um it was a, it's a raspberry, raspberry lemonade uh, made through there uh, with orange juice and some grenadine splashed in there and just a little bit of lime. And that was it. That sounds delicious. Sounds it was pretty good. Binary sunset. I like it. Yeah, that's great. Even thematically appropriate. Is that one of the drinks at Galaxy's Edge? It is not. But if they yeah. want it, they're more than welcome to come talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we are we are all splitting a beer over here. Um, uh, it, it is uh, a beer from oh, who is this from? Uh, man, who is this from? Oozla Finch Beers and Blending. Wow, I've never heard of this brewery before. Um, from uh, Fort Monroe, Virginia. Is a 9% pastry stout, uh, an imperial dessert stout with lucuma powder, maple syrup, 
Shalaka unsweetened chocolate, marshmallow, vanilla, and lactose. There ever was a beer that a gand drank. It sounds like this. Uh, but I've been I've been holding back the name of this because it's so great. This one goes out to Arisi. It is called Teats Out. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. It, it's called Teats Out. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, it actually has a picture of a, of a pig. Full of whipped cream. Uh, pig nipples. And we do know that in Star Wars, it is perfectly acceptable to milk a creature's nipples on screen for, for a drink. Thank you, Last Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Johnson, you're a damn visionary. So. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that, that brings us to the, the end of our, our episode here. Uh, this has been episode... 128 of the inking out loud podcast uh next up we will be heading on into dresden files book two full moon and if you want to support the show get early access to that episode uh get access to all of our bonus content check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash inking out loud as always i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me are my special guests ryan bruckman hey bye lauren mccaffrey Thanks for having me. And our resident Star Wars nerd, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>